Well, church, it's great to, it's great to be back uh, with you after several weeks of uh, just being off. I was really in need of a break, uh, and, uh, and so I was able to get that. And I just want to say thank you to Pastor Chris McLaughlin for just his labor, yeah, his, uh, his labor in the Word, in the Ruth series, and then also Pastor Mitch for preaching last Sunday. He did a great job as well. So thank you, thank you guys. Um, just, just really blessed by their ministry. So, you know, one of the great tasks in life is figuring out who you are. It is, it is so fundamental to living just to discover who you are. And so how you see yourself is so impactful of every single area of your life. It impacts your relationships. It impacts uh, your future. It impacts um, just your, your capacity for joy and happiness in everyday life. So it's absolutely crucial that you and I ask and answer these questions, who am I? What is my core identity? And so the search for this identity starts early in life. It starts, it starts uh, way back in school with the child asking, what do I want to be? You know, who am I? And how am I to behave? And so it continues from from childhood and the start of school, it continues on for many, many years, this search for identity. And over the next couple of weeks, uh, many of our kids will be entering into the classroom again, Lord willing. Um, and uh, as they go back to school, there are going to be a lot of influences in our kids' lives that will seek to try to answer that question of identity for them. And so this morning, we're, we're starting a series that I'm calling uh, Raise Them Up. And in this series, I really want to speak to our kids. And I want to speak to our students. And I particularly want to challenge the parents to raise up their kids in Christ. And so even if you're not a parent, even if your kids are grown and gone, this series is for you. Because as adults, we struggle with the very same issues that we're going to be looking at over these next few weeks. You see, really adults are just big kids. And, uh, and so the same forces that are gonna be seeking to influence uh, our kids' identity is the, are the very same forces that are gonna seek to influence our identity. Now, what most people really don't realize is that the enemy works overtime to try to keep you from realizing who you are. The enemy works through so many tools to try to prevent you from discovering your true identity. One tool that the enemy uses uh, are the opinions of other people. So what happens is, you know, we, we, we look to the opinions of our friends or our parents or our coworkers or a coach or a teacher, and the enemy seeks to use those opinions to try to conform us into what they think we should be rather than what God wants us to be. Another tool that the enemy uses is the tool of hurt and pain. And so in life, we experience struggles and adversities. We experience disappointments and hurts in, in, in the course of just living everyday life. And the enemy seeks to use that pain to shape us into the image that he wants for us. And so a parent might say to their child, you'll never amount to anything. And then that child grows up and experiences a, a number of setbacks. And then they think back to what their parents said. 
And then, the, and then the, the grown child says, you know what, my parents were right, I'm never going to amount to anything. Now, you know what just happened there? That, that, that child just made an agreement with the devil. That child just bought into a lie that shapes and defines their identity. Another tool that the enemy uses is social media. So we get on social media and we look at all of our followers and, and we look at all of our friends when they post pictures of their perfect life. Their perfect life, their best life now. And we look at that and what do we start to do? Instantly, we don't even realize that we're already comparing ourselves to them. And we ask the question, why can't I have a house like they have? Why can't I have perfectly, you know, obedient and athletic and academic kids just like they have? Why can't I have that? And so what happens is this comparison on social media causes discontentment and and really It causes us to discount the goodness of God in our life and we just vacate who we're really supposed to be in Christ. And so the enemy uses all of those things to keep us from from really realizing who we are in Christ. And so the question then becomes, how do we know who we are? How do I know my identity? How do I arrive at that? Well, it's interesting because Blaise Pascal, probably somebody you've heard of, asked and answered the very same question. He was a mathematician. He was an inventor. Uh, he lived during the 1600s. He was, uh, experienced a con- a, just a life-changing conversion to Christ. And this is what he said in answer to this question. He says, not only do we know God by Jesus Christ alone, but we know ourselves only by Jesus Christ. We know life and death only through Jesus Christ Apart from Jesus Christ, we do not know what is our life, nor our death, nor God, nor ourselves. Now, just think about what he's saying there. He's saying that the answer to the question of identity is through Jesus Christ. We know ourselves through and in Jesus Christ. You know, this, uh, this phrase, in him or in Christ, it is, it is the most frequent descriptor in the New Testament of a Christian, in Christ, in him. It's used about 170 times in in the New Testament. And really what it conveys to us is our identity, who we really are. Church family, your core identity and my core identity is the phrase, in Christ. That's how we are defined. That is how we know who we are. And what I want to do today is I want to read a passage of Scripture to you from Ephesians chapter 1. This is an amazing, an amazing passage of Scripture. And I want you, we're going to just kind of, uh, in a moment we're just going to stand, but I, I want you to notice how many times the Apostle Paul in these few verses uses this phrase, in Christ or in him. So, so would you stand together as we read the word of God? We're going to read Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14. And so the apostle Paul says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Wow, what an amazing passage. This passage, church, is a treasure trove of gospel identifiers. It's all over the place. Uh, And what I want to do today is just share with you briefly three facts about your identity and my identity in Christ, all right? Number one, let me share this with you. In Christ, I have God's approval. That is what the Apostle Paul is communicating in Ephesians 1, that in Christ, I have God's approval. Now, what does that really mean? Well, what it means is just acknowledging the reality that you and I crave approval. We crave love and acceptance, don't we? And what he's trying to communicate to us very simply is we have it in Christ. We have God's full approval. We can rest in the smile of God. Let me just show it to you again. Look at verse 4. Look at what he says. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, now what, what I love about that passage is it, it talks about his choosing of us before the foundation of the world. And his choosing is a mark of his approval of us. His choosing is a mark of approval for us. You see, most people don't realize, but we, we spend a significant part of our lives chasing approval and acceptance. We want to be accepted and, and have the approval of our friends or our parents or uh, teachers and coach, coaches and, and coworkers. And we do so many different things to try to gain that approval. We'll do anything including wear certain clothes and act a certain way and eat certain foods and, and, and all of that just for the purpose of wanting to feel loved and accepted and approved. And it's the reason why is because we have this massive need in us for this. We have this massive need for approval and acceptance. Now, how do I know that? Well, I, I think we all know it. If you, if you remember back in elementary school when your teacher said, all right, Boys and girls, we're going to go outside and we're going to divide up into two teams and we're going to play softball or soccer. And then the teacher selects two captains to to, to choose the teams. Now, at that moment, what was the first thought that ran through your mind as you realized they're going to be picking teams? Your first thought was, oh, Lord, please don't let me be last. I don't want to be last because there's this kind of stigma with being the very last one picked in, you know, the the very last one drafted in the third grade soccer draft. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that would be the worst thing in the world. Now, here's here's the question. You, You don't want to be the last one picked. You don't want to be the last one chosen. But let me ask you, when did God choose you? He chose you first. And what Paul is saying in this passage is he chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose you before he made the animals and the rivers and the oceans and the rocks and the streams and the stars and the planets. He made you, he chose you before all of that. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? 
He didn't choose you last. He chose you first. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He didn't just create the world and think, oh my goodness, I need to put some people in this world. No, he didn't do that. He had us in mind and he created a place for us to live and and to thrive. Now, that is pretty amazing. So you have what Paul is saying, the very approval of God in your life. Now, how do we get this approval? Did we get it because we deserved it, because we achieved it? Did we get the approval of God because there's just something so good in us? No, we didn't get it through earning it or achieving it or because there was something great uniquely about us. The Apostle Paul tells us how we got it. He gives us the instrument through which we received the approval of God. He tells us, look at this, verse 4 again, even, or verse 5, he says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons, notice this phrase, through Jesus Christ. Now, what he's talking about there is this, that our approval comes through the performance of Jesus Christ. The instrumentality of us receiving God's approval is God's son, Jesus. In other words, the approval of God is not something we've deserved. It's not something we achieved. It's not something we earned. The approval of God is bestowed upon us because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, you didn't earn it, you didn't achieve it, you didn't deserve it, but you've received it. And that is the gospel, that that our salvation is a gift from God. Now, think with me about the world. How do you receive approval in the world? Well, you have to perform. And so if you want approval in the classroom, you got to study. If you want approval on the athletic field or in the athletic arena, you've got to perform. You know, if you want, if, if you want approval at work, you got to work your way right on up. The problem is, is when it comes to our relationship with God, you and I did not perform very well. We messed up and we missed the mark. In fact, Romans tells us this, that all of us have sinned and fallen short. We've missed the mark of God's glorious standard. That there is no one righteous no, not one. So this, this has created a problem for us. It's created a chasm between us and God that we, that we cannot bridge. One of the things that I've noticed after being a, a Hoosier for, for over 20 years, one of the things I've noticed is there's a real belief among a lot of people that live in central Indiana that if, that if we're just good people, if we're just good, hardworking people, then that's enough that we'll go to heaven just by being good. And I want to tell you, that's a myth. It's an absolute myth. The thought is, if I just pay my taxes, and if, if I just provide for my family, if I, if I just try to do good things and kind of go to church every now and then, that, that, that my goodness will be good. Surely God's not going to keep me out of heaven, you know, if, if I'm good. And it's really a myth, church. It, it is, it is a, it's a myth. Because here's the thing, there's two parts of the myth that, The first part of the myth is this. We're making an assumption that goodness is the standard. And goodness is not God's standard. Perfection is God's standard. The second part of this myth is the reality that our sense of goodness has been corrupted by sin. We're not nearly as good as we think we are. 
And so we compare ourselves to other people and we kind of measure up, well, I'm kind of better than them. So surely God will see that betterness. The problem is, is that the Bible says if we've, if we've sinned one time, we've broken the entire law of God. So it's kind of an all or nothing deal. And so the problem is, is we are far from perfect. We are far from the standard. We've got a problem and our sin is that problem. But see, here's the good news. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You see, he perfectly fulfilled the law of God for us. That's what he did. It wasn't just his death, church. It was his life. His life of active obedience every single day until his death and his resurrection that, that saves us and changes us. Now, let's just, just do a little test here. And, um, and I want to just kind of see how you're doing on the moral goodness scale, okay? So just, you don't have to respond uh, vocally with ease or physically, but just kind of think in your mind. Have you always loved your neighbor? Always. Not sometimes. Have you always loved your neighbor? Neither have I. Neither have I. But Jesus has. Have you prayed for and always blessed your enemies? Have you? Neither have I. But Jesus has. Have you resisted every single temptation, every temptation in thought and word and deed throughout your entire life? Yep, neither have I. Guess who has? Jesus. Who has kept the entire law for all of eternity? Have you? Neither have I. But Jesus has. You see, you see not only did Jesus live this life of, that we were supposed to live, this life of perfect obedience, but he died the death we were supposed to die. So he actually paid the penalty for us and took our place. So, so what happens is, and the, theologians kind of call this a big term, the great exchange. So, so our sin and rebellion goes to him and our punishment goes to him, but then his righteousness goes to us. And it happens by grace through faith. So Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live and he died the death we were supposed to die. There's a great passage on this, 2 Corinthians 5.21 where the Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, there's that word again, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, that is called amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's, that's what that's about. Now, can I just give you, as we think about how God's approval came to us, can we just apply that for a minute? Can we just think about the implications of this? If I have God's approval, I don't, need to, I don't need to slavishly pursue trying to get the approval of all the other people in my life. See, the gospel actually sets me free from pursuing constantly people-pleasing and applause-seeking. I'm set free from that. And what this means is I have the approval of the only one in the universe, the only opinion in the universe that matters. His name is Jesus. And so as parents, what you need to do, 
moms and dads and granddads and grandmoms, is teach your kids this. Teach your kids the gospel. Because what happens is, as we grow older, we become in bondage to trying to people please and trying to approval seek. When in reality, by grace through faith, we have it through Jesus Christ. And so one of the most important things you can teach your kids is the opinion of the world really doesn't matter. The opinion of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords does. And so God made me to be me, and through his son, he freed me to be me, which means I'm free to love and serve. So that's number one. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying, is that in Christ, I have God's approval. But number two, I want you to get this. In Christ, I am precious in God's sight. I am precious in God's sight. Look with me at verse five, and I'll show it to you. He says this, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now notice the first two words, in love. Now, do you know what that means? God loves you. That's what it means. It means that you, you have infinite worth in the eyes of God, that you are loved. Church, that you are precious in his sight. That is, that is what it means. It means. It means literally in verse five that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It means that he has set his affection on you, that he has set his love on you. That's what he's talking about. You know, 29 years ago when I, when I first met Luann Church, you know what I did? I set my love on her. I set my affection on her. I really did. Uh, she had no idea what was going on in my heart and mind. Uh, but uh, I was blind once, but, but that day I could see. Let me just tell you. And uh, praise be to God for that. But you know, in the same way, before you even knew it, God set his love on you. Do you know that? Do you know how precious you are? Do you know that he knows what you're struggling with right now? Do you know that he loves you? He's not left you, he's with you. And so, and so that's, that's at the heart of this. Now, you know, the question is, well, why, why did God set his love on us? To what end did he set his love for us? Well, he tells us in verse five, it says he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. His purpose, the reason why he set his love on you is so that he would adopt you and bring you into his family as sons and daughters of God. You see, since the beginning of time, you've heard me say this over and over again, God's been building family. That is the work of God in the world today. Jesus said, my father's working and I'm working too. You know what their work is? They're building a family. And they do it through, they do it through adoption. Now, here's the question, because I know there's some pushback a little bit on this uh, in your mind and in your heart and definitely from the enemy of our souls. But how do I really know that God loves me? How do I really know that? Well, let me give you two reasons why we can know that God, that God loves us. First of all, we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We are made, the Latin for image of God, the Bible says we are made in God's image. The Latin is imago Dei. We are made in the likeness of God. And so of all the creatures that God created, and listen to this, this is so important. Of all the creatures that God created, we as human beings, are created in the very likeness in the image of God. There's mystery around what that means, but what it really means is we're set apart from all rest of creation to represent God on this earth. 
And so God told Adam and Eve to fill the earth, to multiply, to subdue it, and to rule the earth. God wants to rule the earth through us is what he wants to do. And so what he did is he created us in his likeness and in his image. Now this, this has, church, profound implications for for where we are today in 2020 in the United States of America. Here, let, let, me, let me just kind of explain it this way. You and I have to develop the unshakable conviction of being image bearers of God. That every single human being bears the image and likeness of God. We need that conviction. Because when you understand that every man, woman, and child on the earth bears the stamp of God, what that does is that defines personhood for you and for me. We know what a person is because every person is stamped with the image of God. And so that is huge for what is going on in our world today. That is the driving force for why, as Christians, we care for the poor. We care for the vulnerable. We care for the unborn. We care for, we care for those who are incapacitated in their body or their soul or their spirit in any way. We care for those who are weak and can't defend themselves. Why? Because every single person is made in the image of God. It doesn't, doesn't matter if you're male or female or black or white or rich or poor or educated or not. Every single person is stamped with the image of God and in his likeness. And so that is our reason why we, we care for those and represent those and defend those who can't care and, and represent and defend themselves. You know, I remember... 10 years ago, my mom passed away of lung cancer. She, uh, the cancer, you know, took her life over the course of 12 months. And the last two months of her life were, were pretty rough. She, she wasn't very functioning. Uh, she, she really struggled just physically those, those last two months. And so we, we had to provide that care, that constant care that she really needed. And so we constantly reminded her of, of our love for her. Because just because she wasn't fully functioning, just because she wasn't fully productive in society, didn't in any way compromise her personhood. It didn't in any way compromise the reality that she is an image bearer of God. And so as Christians, we value life. We value one another. We value people. We, we value men, women, and children. That's who we are. Because we're stamped with personhood. We're made in the image of God. I love C.S. Lewis on this. Uh, in, the, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, this is how he ends his sermon on the weight of glory. He says like this, uh, there are no ordinary people. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, the Lord's Supper, he says, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ is hidden. Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden in your neighbor. Isn't that amazing? How would we treat one another on social media if we realized we were image bearers of God that we were communicating with? I think it would impact us in a huge way. So we know we are precious in his sight because we're made in his image. And then secondly, we know that he loves us and that we're precious because he died for us. He died for us. Look at 1 Peter 1.18. He says, you were ransomed 
from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, because that stuff's not even going to last. But you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. See that word precious? It just means high value. It means highly esteemed. So, so basically what Peter is reminding us of is that God the Father gave up what was precious to him to redeem us so that we could reflect that preciousness. That's how you know that God loves you is because, because he died for you. It's, it's, Jesus, it's Jesus' death on the cross that reminds us of his love. And so, so you need parents. You need to tell your kids how precious they are in God's sight. You need to remind them that they are made in the image of God, that they are image bearers, and that the people, that their friends that they're hanging with and playing with at school and in the neighborhood, they too are image bearers of God. They're bear, they, they bear the very glory of God himself. But there's a, a third fact about our identity, and it's this, that in Christ, I have a unique purpose. I have a unique purpose. And you see this in verses 11 and 12. The Apostle Paul says this, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Now, I, I know that it's, I know it's kind of theological language here. It's kind of, kind of complex, but let me just kind of break it down for you. He says, we've been given an inheritance. Do you know what the inheritance is? It's Jesus. So Jesus living inside of us is the inheritance. Now, for what purpose do we have this inheritance? Well, he tells us in verse 12, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. That's the purpose. That you and I might be to the praise of his glory. That's our purpose in life. Now, our purpose in life is not to be rich. Our purpose in life is not to be comfortable. Our purpose in life is not to be famous. Our purpose in life is to bring glory and honor to God, that we would be to the praise of his glory. That's why we've been given this inheritance. That's why we have been purchased. That's why we have been forgiven. That's why we've been transferred from darkness into light so that we might reflect the light of the gospel of Jesus. That means this. Let's just bring it down to terms, all right? Earth terms. That means you and I were not born by accident. That means that God, God created you for a purpose. You may not have been planned by your parents, but you were planned by God. And you have, you have been given a purpose, and that purpose means that you are to live to the praise of his glory. In other words, you have something to offer to the world. I want our kids and our students to hear that. God, God created you and allowed you to be born because you, you have something to offer to this world. You were created to make a contribution. You were. And so that is absolutely huge. And, and what that means is he uniquely shaped you to make that contribution, whatever that contribution is. And it's going to be different, but it's going to be the same. And the same in that God is glorified, but, but he uniquely made you with gifts and abilities and talents and interests and passions and, you know, just all kinds of 
things that you're interested in so that you would use those things to the praise of his glory. Do you know, uh, do you know that no one else has your DNA structure? Did you know that? Like no one in the history of the world has your DNA, anything like your DNA. Do you know that your thumbprint, your footprint, your heartbeat, your eye print is so absolutely unique? No one else has that. And so what we learn from scripture is this, you are one in a million. You're one in quadrillion. That's how unique you are. And so, and so God doesn't want you to be someone else. He doesn't want you to try to be someone else. So many times we try to, we try, oh man, I really want to be like them or I really want to be like her. And, and so we spend our entire life trying to be somebody that we're not. Listen, church, God doesn't want you to be someone else. He wants you to be you. And you are precious in his sight. You are beautiful. And when you start getting traction in who God created you to be, you start realizing the smile of God in your life. You start fulfilling the purpose that he has for you, the purpose of bringing glory and honor to Jesus throughout your life. Now, that, that doesn't mean, you know, that as you start working and start contributing to the world, it doesn't mean everybody's going to know about your contribution. All seven billion people in the world today are not going to know about your contribution. But God will. And his opinion is the only one that matters. And so when you live for his applause, you know what you get in return? The applause of God back. And that is the glory of God. You live for his applause and he gives it right back to you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me just show you this from Ephesians 2.10. Just kind of the next chapter over, I wanna show you this one verse. Uh, tremendous passage that really unpacks this for us. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes this, and he's trying to encourage Christians just like you and me, and he tells them, we are, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, there are a number of things in this passage that I want you to notice. The first thing I want you to notice is that word workmanship. That word workmanship literally means, in the Greek, it's poema. And we get the word poem from that. I think you've heard me share that before. And so literally what he's saying is, you are God's poem. You are his masterpiece. You are a work of art. You're a painting that he's painting. You're a sculpture that he is sculpting. You're a symphony that God is conducting. You realize that? Do you realize how the uniqueness and the preciousness that God has on your life, do you, do you realize that? That's what he's saying. And then he says this, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you were created for this contribution to serve God and to bring glory to God. And then lastly, he says this, which, which God prepared beforehand. Like he not, he not only chose us before the foundation of the world, but he prepared good works before the foundation of the world. That's what he's talking about, that we should walk in them. Mom and dad, teach your kids to walk in them. Teach your kids that they've been given a unique purpose, that they have a calling on God to, to serve the world and to make a difference in the world today. You're, in, in other words, I think another way of saying it would be this, teach your kids that they're not a reject and they're not a defect. They are a masterpiece created to serve God. Now, what I've noticed 
in America and in our community is a lot of time as a lot of times as parents what we want for our kids is we really want the American dream for them. We want our kids to you know go to high school, go to college, graduate, make that six-figure salary, you know, get married, have two-story house, three cars, a boat and a dog. You know what I mean? Like that's the American dream. That's what we really want for them. And can I just tell you that's not God's dream. You know, if you if if your kids really discover their unique purpose, they'll live God's dream. And all of those other things will take care of themselves, I promise you. It'll take care of themselves. You don't need those things. Because all we need, the only thing that really matters is our kids and our grandkids and our nieces and our nephews, that they're serving and loving Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? Amen, exactly. So that's, that's who you are, church. That's who you are, kids. You, you are approved by God. You are precious in His sight. You have a unique purpose. Adults, have you forgotten that? Are you walking in that? Because this is who you are. Let me end with a last C.S. Lewis quote. He says this, the son of God became a man to enable men and women to become sons and daughters of God. And in Christ, that is what you are. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we're blown away by the gospel identifiers that we see just, just so beautifully in this, in this scripture passage. I pray that you would open our eyes to who we really are in you. God, your grace, your sovereignty, joy and love, delight would be in us. So God, help us to step into more of the reality of who we are. And help us to lead our, our kids there, God. Help us to reflect it, to live it, and to walk in it. And so we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.